0: with all the Penn members uh, who are in the workshop. What you will hear tonight uh, are some of the members, uh, because some people are not here, but most of them are. And if there is any time, I know that there is uh, a list, I have it, um, of people who are not in the workshop who signed up to read, but I have a feeling that that probably is not going to happen because we have 15 people scheduled uh, who are all Penn members of the workshop. So uh, I, I I hope maybe there'll be a little time, but I, I'm not um, guaranteeing that because people can only listen, you know, for a certain amount of time and then their head begins to swim. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll see what happens about that um, in the meanwhile. I would just like to say, um, for those of you who don't know what this is all about, as I said, this is our eighth year that we are doing this reading, but during the year, except in the summer when we're not having anything happen, uh, we have a meeting every month at different people's homes, and we, in that case, read – I have a list of people (laughs) to read always Um, and we discuss the work that they're reading and i i'm being brief about this but basically that is what happens and we also have a social time and the person whose house is uh, who's h- holding at her house um ha- serves refreshments too and so up until this past year we were doing it i think at $2 um and we raised it to $4 cuz uh, you know we've had Wonderful feast, you might say, not because anybody asked anybody to do that, but because everybody's very generous and would like to, you know, have something nice to eat and drink. So uh, that is the way, briefly, that works. Um, If you have any questions about it, you can speak afterwards. Um, And also, uh there were many people who called me on the phone and left messages. Most, I, I think I spoke to everybody who called. Um, and they were interested either in reading or in becoming a member of the workshop. And so my suggestion is, uh, I, I mean, I spoke to you, whatever I could say at the time. But here is a pad and a pen. And afterwards, if you would please put your name and address down, or introduce yourself to me also, then we could speak, um, and we do have pretty full capacity about members at this moment, but w- we will probably take in two or three people uh, who can audit for a while I- in the meetings if you choose to come and see what we do so uh, but I do have a list in the order of how it was conveyed to me, you know uh so. That is how the members are going to be um, taken into the group, you know, immediately. But also, you know, people drop out or they have to move somewhere else, and so on. So we always gradually take new members in. We we are very happy with those we have, but we're always happy to have new members also. Um, so if you have any questions later, okay. Now, the next meeting that we will have is at five thirty. So is at 5.30. We meet on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, depending. Um, And the next one is Tuesday, October 26th at at Corrine Gerson Ackerman's house, which is, you don't have to really know this now, but 101 West 12th Street, apartment 2N. And I always send out postcards to members so you'll get more information. And the meeting after that in November is at Alice Denham, which is also in the village, although we meet sometimes other places, um, and that's on Grove Street, on Wednesday, November 17th, so that is the next two meetings that are happening. In those meetings, um, I'm afraid that we can't just ordinarily have guests and visitors. We can have people who are not going to read, who are going to be members, but otherwise, generally it's not possible because there are too many people that would come and so on. Um, We're very happy you're here tonight, though. But anybody, just for a moment, raise your hand, not because I'm gonna know necessarily who you are, but I would just like to see, of all those people who called me, who is here tonight? Hi. Oh, hi. Um, Okay, so any those people, please, afterwards, come and speak to me. Um, See, what I notice, about human nature, I probably shouldn't say this, but if you say to somebody and they're not in the group, you won't be able to read tonight, but why don't you come to the reading (laughs) and see what people are doing? Very often those people do not come, so um, we like a little enthusiasm (laughs) along with a desire to read, Uh, so God forgive me for saying this, but it's true. And I just one more thing briefly, um, when you're reading, if you care to, briefly say other than that five minutes that each person is given time to read, um, if you'd like to say what has happened with your work, something's happened with your work in the past year, or something is going to happen, please mention that, but, but don't do a whole tale about it at that point because we don't have time. But it would be nice to hear what people are doing, and so on. Uh, you know, so please keep that in mind. And very briefly, um, all kinds of people have good reasons who are members why they're not here. I'm not going to say now, and they'll be you know coming to other meetings, but they're away, or they're reading somewhere in another country, or you know, or or ill, or different things. So that's what's happening but we, we do have uh, at least um, actively another six members who are not here tonight. Okay, um, okay now I believe that everything you're going to hear tonight and you could say I'm prejudiced but I don't think so. Um, everybody's very talented who's going to read tonight and they all write in different genres and they have different styles of writing and so on but uh, I think it will be very interesting. And I would like to say, if you can have a little forbearance, try to stay for the whole program because we ha- all the readers are our best readers. But the ones towards the end are equally, or more even, our best readers. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> so. And we change around the order every year and so on so that different people get a chance to read early on and so on. Okay. So the first person who's going to read today is Carmen Valle. Um, she's uh, a wonderful poet and she teaches uh, in a college, I think in Brooklyn. And I've heard her read in other gatherings too and so on, so it's always been a great pleasure. So we're very happy to have Carmen here tonight.
1: going to read from the last part of a book that I have been working on for the past several years. The title is Esta Casa Flotante y Abierta, This Floating and Open House. And the book is divided into two parts, The Meditation of the Inhabitant and The Book of Maps. I am going to read the, the last maps. Now the book is ready, has been translated by Chris Brandt and it is making some rounds to see what happens. I am going to read first in Spanish and then after each poem the translation. (laughs) Mapa para enterrar un vivo. Es un entierro largo. Es una caravana de tullidos que te acompaña. Es un bolero de cafetín. Donde la pérdida siempre le gana a la pelea, al odio o a la venganza. Es un velorio que se acerca al juicio, pero no eres el único acusado. A solas se delibera a quienes tocaste o embriagaste, y peor, aún tocas y embriagas. Discípulos tendrás y algún acólito, también quien sorprenda dolor al nombrarte. Por la noche, Enemiga y aliada de los claros, solo tú sabrás a quién nombras. Map for a live burial. It is a long funeral. A caravan of cripples keeps you company. It's a torch song in a little dive, where loss wins out always over hatred or vengeance. It's a wake that seems like a trial, but you're not the only accused. People deliberate among themselves, people you have moved or delighted, and worse yet, whom you still move or delight. Disciples shall you have, and maybe an acolyte, also those surprised to feel pain speaking your name. At night, enemy and ally of the candid. You alone will know whose name you call. Um, in the, the book, the book of maps are, uh, the book is, uh, it has a number of maps and um, around three or four of them about, are about goodbyes. Map of goodbyes one, two, three, but they decided that the last one was going to be Mapa del adios no, map of no goodbye. <laughs> no se despide de la sal el mar, y entre la tierra y la luna no es adios esa distancia. El fuego con la leña se aniquilan para siempre juntándolos el polvo. El tiempo de la noche con el día. No se trata del no mas, sino del cuando. Se trata de ayer cuando era hoy, y de hoy que entre ayer y después, conjuga siempre, siempre. The sea takes no leave of the salt, nor is the distance goodbye between earth and the moon. Fire and wood consume each other to remain forever united in ashes. The matter of time between night and day concerns not never, but when. It's about yesterday, when it was today, and today, that between yesterday and later conjugates forever, forever. Mapa para un botín. Podrá no ser el mediodía ni el largo camino que se otea. Podremos no encontrar miel suficiente ni encontrar la osa mayor aunque busquemos. Podremos escudriñar el horizonte y ni aún frente al mar lo consigamos. Podrá ser que todo fue juego lento en intento de volar cuidando el ala, pero el vértigo de la guerra... Aliñado con olores de la selva, en todos los astilleros construyó barcos piratas. Zarpan hacia todas las bahías, de sí mismo el premio de lanzarse, a encontrar acuerdo mudo entre el horizonte que se escapa y una flota de sal que se derrumba. Map for a stash of booty. Maybe the place to look is not in the middle of daylight nor on the long road. Maybe we won't find enough honey nor the big deeper for all our looking. Maybe we will scan the horizon and even facing the sea, never find it. Maybe everything's being a slow game, meaning to fly, saving our wings, but the dizziness of war Seasoned with jungle odors, built pirate ships in every way. Bayward they sail at all points, the launch its own reward, seeking mute accord between the vanishing horizon and a crumbling fleet of salt.
0: That's the part I hate most, is to tell people it's five minutes um, because they're reading wonderful things and nobody likes to be interrupted. But even so, uh, we do have all those readers, so we have to keep it to the five minutes. Um, and uh, we have a wonderful timekeeper over here, you see, who tells me if I don't know, John Mueller is helping us out like that. Um, so, we, you know, we have. Prime Assistance. Thank you, Carmen. That was beautiful poetry, Um, and I wish we could have heard more. Our next reader tonight is Nancy Hallinan, and she's writing or going to be reading fiction, and uh, I find her work you know wonderfully witty besides having se- it's very serious moments but it's, it's it's kind of intriguing so let's see what Nancy Hallinan Hallinan, Hallinan. Hallinan. yes okay
2: This is a brief excerpt from a short story. What? Closer to me? Like this? Ah, okay, now we're in. This is a brief excerpt from a short story excerpted from my latest novel, which is called Paxton's Gift. There are three characters in this scene. Margaret Dane is an elderly, once famous actress, now in her 70s. Paxton Teasdale is her companion of some 50 years. He has fallen down the stairs to the cellar on his way to get champagne. Wilfred Tennyson Tull is a piano tuner. The doorbell rings and the scene begins. Tennyson, Margaret cried, I need your help. He relieved himself of his raincoat, umbrella, and satchel of interest instruments, feeling the familiar lurching of his insides at the eternal helplessness of the human female, Sylvia, for instance, and his aunts. Paxton has fallen headlong into the cellar, Margaret cried. He's broken all his legs and had a heart attack, I think. <laughs> He needs help, a man's help, she added, now pulling him to the end of the hall. Here they took two steps down a twisted platform and then another step. The hall light flickered in some ecstasy with the storm outside. The cellar was in darkness. Tennyson, she whispered, go down and reassure him. He stared at her blankly. She gazed back with pleading eyes, please. He glanced down a steep cliff of steps, a sheer drop into an invisible abyss, and wondered frantically what he'd done wrong. How had he sinned to warrant this crippling phobia, this malaise? Margaret, I can't. She smiled again, winningly, radiantly. She had the poise of a temptress and the cunning of a coquette, and he felt again the female force of helplessness. She was a gifted actress, no doubt, but obviously beyond the pale of human understanding in the disciplines of parapsychology and psychotherapy. I don't go down into basements, he said. He may be dying. I don't go down into basements, he repeated, for medical reasons. She smiled again, half closing her eyes, black lashes fluttering and he knew the folly of explanation, knowing a lot about women, his aunts, for instance, and their belief in Christ's scientist and God's will. Guessing at Margaret's medical denomination, he fled into simply worded ailments. He had a bad back, a herniated disc in the lower lumbar region, which affected his balance. He, too, had a heart condition, too delicate to describe. He loved her piano, and he admired her reputation, especially her Medea. And he would help if he could, but he couldn't. She gave him a shriveling look. I want you to understand this, he said, clutching her arm. I cannot look down. I get vertigo. I get giddy. It's a medical disorder of the equilibrium, an an instability marked by a swimming in the head and sometimes a rotary movement of the torso. I can't. Cannot go down those steps or look <laughs> down. I c- cannot. Tennyson. I want you to understand this," he said, clutching her bare arm. "I cannot look down. I get vertigo, Giddiness. It's a medical disorder of the li- I- equilibrium. It cannot go down. He saw the stairs lengthen and vanish and felt the fatal pull of vertigo, an umbilical tug from the earth's womb. He tightened his grip on her hand and felt himself swaying. Margaret, I cannot. He knew he was in for it, because he saw the steely look of a woman about to scream for the sheer physical joy of eternal pitch. Unexpectedly, Margaret did not scream. Her face was her eloquence, in deadly silence her expression condemned him to the cowards of the world, the traitors, the collaborators, black marketeers worse the lights danced off and on seductively he tightened his grip on her arm and felt himself swaying she pulled away the lights blinked amen as they finished their orgasm and faded into the arms of darkness Margaret he cried He heard her retreating steps as she descended the stairs. He was alone, alone in the dark above an abyss, alone to grope about blind with fear. Margaret, he whimpered.
0: Thank you, Nancy. That was really terrific. Very provocative. I'd like to know what happens next. Uh, or does the inertia and so on move along? Or <laughs> does action happen? Um, it is happening. I know that. Um, could everybody hear Nancy? Yeah. Back in the back, too? You can hear what's happening? Okay. All right. Our next reader is Alice Denham, um, who I'm delighted is here today after serious business um, and uh, has been here practically from the first in our group, um, which has been wonderful. It's wonderful to hear her work and wonderful to know her. Um, And today she is reading a um, short story written this summer in Mexico. Uh, If you want to say anything more about it, you will. (laughs) Thank you.
3: Hello, everybody. I like to stand
4: up and they don't want me
3: to.
4: Oh, that's all right. Can you hear me all right? How about now? I, sh- I should mention that over these various sessions, various of you have heard me read from my Southern Girlhood memoir, Shabby Genteel, and it looks like we're... <laughs> looks like we're close to a a publisher on that so i'll let you know more (laughs) later also members of the group saw a little movie based on a short story of mine a half hour movie and we showed that this summer in san miguel as a fundraiser for the the local chapter of pen and it was shown on a big screen and it held up very well and people liked it a lot so that was good so i wrote mexican short stories this summer and i'm going to read a very I wrote serious long ones, and this is a very light, short one. Okay, this is called Ambition. Indio Triste is the name of a street in San Miguel. That means sad Indian, of course. On Indio Triste live two handsome compadres who are amateur wrestlers who've appeared on local TV. Both taxi drivers, Angelito and Jesus, called Chuchu, are great buddies who share the same ambition a lofty ambition that only awaits opportunity. Angelito and Jesus want to be hitmen. They hear a gringa wants to get rid of her husband. A bummer and a borracho, Jane tells Gustavo. I want to get rid of him, get my life back. Je- Jesus and Angelito overhear this and discreetly follow Jane home. Sombreros removed, both bow and explain that having overheard her desperation, they will undertake the job. They will get rid of Jane's husband for $200. (laughs) What on earth do you mean, says Jane. Choo-choo points an imaginary pistola at his own head and obligingly falls down. (laughs) Locos, Jane says as she slams the door. She phones Gustavo. What sort of joke is that, she says. Gustavo says they're poor to average wrestlers, but he doesn't know them. It must be their own joke because they like wetas. Mexican men are loco for blondes. Those are gueras. Several days later, Angelito and Chuchu knock again. They figure they've given the senora time to check them out. Senora, we are at your service, says Angelito, whose baby face fits his name. We won't even charge you for new pistolas, says Chuchu, gazing with wonder at the wealth inside. The biggest TV he's ever seen, gold this, silver that, VCR, immense stereo, two huge computer setups, and that was just from the slit through the heavy carved wooden door. Jane's green eyes narrow. Either this is somebody's inane joke or you boys are dangerous. No, senora, we aim to please, choo-choo pleads. His chest expands and he works his wide muscled shoulders at her. Chuchu looks like that Estrella del Cine. what's his name, the incredible looking one. Jane slams the door, wondering if she should phone the policia, who'll probably laugh, says Gustavo. As men of of ambition, Angelito and Chuchu don't give up. They decide their best plan may be to rob the senora instead. Tie her down and have fun. Oh, coño, they forgot her husband there in the house. Next time, the boys are confronted by Jane's husband. They disappear fast, yelling, "Cheesey, cheesey, cheesey!" joke, joke, joke. Finally, Jane gets rid of her husband. He moves out and goes home to Dallas. Months pass. Choo Choo appears and apologizes, saying his attraction to Jane was too powerful and he figured some damn fool scheme would cause her to notice him. Could he possibly do some carpentry or painting for her? This goes on for months, till Jane lets him paint the interior patio wall. You know how these things go. Before long, Chuchu is her novio, and finally, her live-in boyfriend. This is the first time in his life Chuchu has gotten laid regularly. A gringa, white lady. we a blonde, not too terrible old. Okay, okay. All the tequila he can drink. Reposado, the best. All the filete, chiles en nogada, huit la coche he can eat. Fiestas in the fancy houses of the rich. Art openings in Palacio galleries, his wetta on his arm. Now and then he spots a compadre with the same good deal. Angelito is jealous, naturally. He begs Jane for work. She lets him paint the exterior patio wall. Brazenly he tries to steal Jane from Chuchu. He croons. I carry fiddies, to honor her green eyes. Jane is too busy to notice. Jane is a volunteer's volunteer. She helps choose worthy candidates for university scholarships donated by the Biblioteca Library to those young Mexicans who are poor but smart. Gringos have given enough money to the Biblioteca they founded to provide 200 scholarships a year. Sadly, neither neither Chuchu nor Angelito would qualify. Jane is aware of the irony. But as many older gringas know, they themselves are greatly desired by young working class men for sex and easy living. Can they do as well at home? Angelito tries a new tactic. He accuses Chuchu of going soft, becoming an old lady's pet chihuahua. How can Chuchu so easily forget their great youthful ambition? Being macho, por Dios, as macho as Angelito, Chuchu is ashamed. He once drove a taxi. He once worked out and got the occasional wrestling gig. The two boys generally wrestled each other, alternating winners. When they were found out, (gasps) that ended it. No more husbands, says Angelito. We've got to hit Senora Jane. Steal everything in the house. Bring a camion, haul it to Senor Valle, the fence, take all our money and head for El Norte. Jane's money is invested at Allen W. Lloyd. She has maybe fifty dollars in casa. Pachuchu no es tonto, fool. Angelito, he says, I am going to give you Senora Jane part of the time. You can be her lover on the side. I doubt it, says Angelito. It takes Chuchu months to convince Jane that Angelito is so jealous he wishes to kill Chuchu, his old buddy, to get to her. If she'll only, well, give him some now and then, this will pacify his rage. Jane pretends this is an awful idea, but it grows on her. Before long, Jane has Chuchu as her significant other and Angelito as her casa chica. With her extra energy bouncing back and forth, Jane works twice as hard at the (laughs) biblioteca. Now, Chuchu is jealous of Angelito, who preens. Chuchu cleans off his old neglected pistola and loads it. Angelito also wants sole possession, so he too finds his gun and loads it up. He hates to dispose of his old compadre from boyhood, but what can you do? You have to move on in life. Jane bounces home from the biblioteca and hears a gunshot echo echo through her elaborate sala. What on earth? Then another. Jane finds her SO and her CC facing each other with smoking pistolas. They both missed. Put down those guns, you tontos estupidos, Jane hollers, advances and grabs first one, then the other pistola, which the boys surrender with limp arms. Now embrace, she orders. Chuchu and Angelito clutch awkwardly and pound each other's back, then face Jane proudly with their arms around each other's shoulders. But Jane also no es tonta. One day, she doesn't come home from the biblioteca. Jane is gone. She sold the house right out from under them. When the new owners arrive, they find Angelito and Chuchu in residence. The husband screams at his wife and she screams at him about this appalling situation. It takes a while, but the policia get them out. The boys depart with copies of every key in the house. Now, at last, they stand a chance at their grand ambition to be hitmen. It just depends on which one wants to get rid of the other most. Well, it's a funny little story, yeah.
0: Thank you, Alice. I think that's pretty grand. It's a a hit, so to speak. Um, And uh, and I'm wondering if all the other stories that you've been writing this summer in Mexico are, uh, you know, in in that tone? No, not at all. Uh huh. Well, that's fascinating. That's funny. (laughs) That is a a nice fantasy carried to an extreme. (laughs) I really like that. our next reader is Elaine Kraft and Elaine, uh, the work that I have heard is mostly fiction um, and uh, it's very different and very um, developed in various ways to perk the imagination, pique the imagination um, and we're going to see what is she coming up with now but for what I know, at least what she's told me a while back, Um, This is called The Final Delusion of Cinderella Corn. Now, I'm not sure if that's the title of what she's reading right now or the whole um, book. It's a novel. It's a novel. So that is the title of the whole novel. (laughs) Okay. Uh, The
5: Summer.
6: My novel, The Princess of 72nd Street, was picked up by Dorky Archives, but I'm not sure when they'll get around to publishing it. This is, thank you. The, uh, the Final Delusions of Cinderella Corn. Oh, that day, foul and dark, so full of churny and the pestilence of Bach, of ice trees and starving birds, I remember too the feathery skeletons that chirped in tune with Lucian's playing and in a tempo consonant with the hacking of ice. It was on that very day that fate caught up with me. I left the house dragging behind me that ever-present aluminum cart, symbol of my imprisonment in Contouch, New Jersey. It wasn't that I left without a goodbye. Not exactly. In fact, just before leaving, I challenged Lucian Menace to stop me. There he sat, erect and uncaring, his buttocks glued to the piano bench. I am going to the laundromat, Lucian, I said, waiting. Along the icy path, I added, and it's freezing outside. Only silence while he exchanged Cherney for Hannon or Hannon for Bach and his spiritual dirges. No one is outside, there is ice everywhere waiting treacherously underneath the top layers of snow. I persisted, lingering in the doorway. Be careful, he managed to utter absentmindedly between heavy down pulled cords that shook the pathetic floors of our home. Not a word about the dangers to me or to the cringing fetus inside. I'll fall and kill myself, I'll be buried under a new snowfall like frozen meat. I was muttering to myself, my voice drowned in arpeggios and in the heavy finality of Bach. And so I left, stumbling along, struggling to keep from falling, dragging myself step by step through the falsely accommodating snow. Fall on the ice and die, I chanted all the way to the inevitable laundromat. I was unsuspecting, innocent in a way of what was to come. I half expected the laundromat to be empty, and yet I wouldn't have been surprised to see one of those Kentuckian housewives in green polyester pants and flowered kerchief zealously folding her wash. While empty of those, however, the laundromat was not vacant. There was one person, a peculiar looking little man wearing a long fitted black coat with fake orange fur forming collar and cuffs, a man in his 60s at least. He was about 5 feet 4 inches in height and possessed a head too tiny even for his small frame as well as an exceedingly low forest forehead top, despite aging, displayed by gray mustache and sagging jowls, by jet black hair, which happened to be the exact color of his coat. His simian face had a yellowish hue. Not a trace of red appeared in his flesh, not even on nose tip or cheek. What's more, no trace of life glowed from his dark eyes. He appeared waxen, in fact with his thin downturned lips, drooping cheeks, and the puffy brownish pockets beneath his eyes. You certainly took long enough, he said, and then scraped his upper teeth over his thin lower lip. He never looked up, but continued staring fixedly at the soapy porthole of his washing machine. I looked around to see who he was addressing, although I was certain that no one else was there. During that brief silence, he snapped the fingers of his right-gloved hand in quick succession six times. "'I know all about you,' he said, "'your darkest secrets, the deepest crevices, ebb-tide, fauna and flora of your soul, my dear, and the fungus thereof.'" (laughs) "'Are you speaking to me?' I asked, taking a few steps toward him." There wafted from his person a strong odor of sweet violets. I see no one else here, or do my senses deceive me? Of course, no one else is here, but you are mistaken, sir. You don't know me at all, and I don't know you. I've never laid eyes upon you until this moment. The little man sighed as though bored. But I do know you, my dear, from end to end, carefully, painstakingly. I am a monument to you, both monstrous and marvelous at once. For Christ's sake, what's a man like you doing in a place like in Touch in New Jersey, I asked, with a high-pitched edge to my voice. Again he sighed and then crossed his arms over his chest. You ask ridiculous questions, elementary, simplistic, totally superfluous and sadly superficial. But then I should have expected it. I am here, and there is nothing more important than that. At long last, I might add, so you know all about me, I echoed, feeling dazed. Let me introduce myself, he said quickly and impatiently. My name is Baron von Schmerzlingumer. He then snapped his right thumb and middle finger together so swiftly and so many times that I lost count. My name is, Don't insult me, I beg of you. I know your name to say the least. I have come to help you retrieve your soul and to place the (coughs) events of your life in order. But we're wasting precious time, my dear. Let me do your wash and then we'll begin our journey of joy, our joyless jest, our joust of jubilation. Again he scraped his little brown stubs of teeth over his bottom lips. Think of it happening right there in an ordinary laundromat in Kentucky, New Jersey, and in broad daylight. What a surprise, as well as an opportunity to learn the secret meaning of my own life. I didn't care, my friends, whether or not he was as mad as the proverbial hatter. Ha ha. Not a bit.
0: you, Elaine. And don't we all want to know who is that person <laughs> met in the laundromat? <laughs> but, so that that's, yeah, we, we just turned off the air conditioner to warm it up a little bit and then we'll um, get colder again, I guess. It's too, I think it's too much, and, and also it's too much noise. I think that's not a good thing. Um, pardon me? It doesn't bother you about Um, Thank you, Elaine. That was pretty terrific. And we'll wait and see what happens when you get that one published. Then we'll learn all about the rest of the details of the book. (laughs) Because we'll be reading it. Um, Okay. Our our next reader is Corinne Gerson Ackerman. And she's going to do a memoir piece. And I don't know if it's my fault or not, but I don't have the title of it. So she's going to tell us, I guess. And and Corinne has been in our group a couple of years and um, we've been really happy to, to hear all the different kinds of work that she does and now I'm very curious to see what is this.
3: This is a bit of a departure from what I've been publishing. I, ri- I mostly write fiction, and most of my books are for kids. They're novels for young adults and preteens, but I've written, well, other things that you'll find out in this. And um, I started doing memoirs uh, some years back before the term was applied to it, but in any case, this, the title is, Becoming a Writer at Grand, in Grand Central Station. <laughs> I enter the rotunda of New York's once again remodeled Grand Central Terminal and gaze wide-eyed at the newest transformation. But each time I experience its latest makeover, I mourn the loss of the only trues, truly significant change, my long-gone private airy, very own noonday retreat that triggered an enviable spate of productivity by providing rent-free, the most genteel of creature comforts, to ply my trade, right smack in the middle of Manhattan. Unknown to many in New York's late 40s was the incongruously elegant little space at the far end of Grand Central's main waiting room, just before the passageway to the ladies' restroom. There, Against the wall, just yards from the last row of church pew benches provided for train waiters, stood a fine period piece writing desk and chair. A soft glow fell from the pair of black and gilt shaded lamps on either side, lighting the inkwell, yes, Mm -hmm. and desk blotter. Mm -hmm. Though it was long past the days of inkwells, ballpoint pens were definitely on the scene. I had come to New York to seek my brilliant career the day after college graduation and living in a small room at the Studio Club a long gone YWCA for Girls in the Arts who had to make application and be accepted I considered this desk at Grand Central my private domain shelter for my commercial muse several days a week during my lunch hour oddly it was almost always available No one else seemed to need or want or dare to venture there during that year when I was assistant editor on a group of romance fiction magazines for one of the pulp giants on the 20-something floor of what we then called a skyscraper just down the street. At noon, when my boss went to Pen and Pencil to drink her lunch with her cronies, I'd cross 42nd Street to the automat, drop my nickels, five I think, into the slot, pull open the little glass door to remove my sliced egg sandwich, and watch the passing scene as I finished off with that memorable pumpkin pie and my own ingenious free lemonade, a glass with ice cubes and lemon meant for iced tea customers, over to the water spigot to fill the glass, squeeze in the lemon, and add sugar from the table dispenser. Then it was up the street to my private office, take out my spiral notebook and pen, and write romance short stories that I sold for a penny a word. They just seemed to pour out. I read and edited and proofread enough of them to get the hang of it and had been writing short stories since I was 12, sending them out to publishers since 17. This came so easily and were more fun, or these came so easily and were more fun. Using the standard girl meets boy, girl loses boy, girl gets boy formula, dressed in the current social vernacular, laced with soap opera color and verve, solidly wholesome, gratifying, and inspirational to a huge and surprisingly diverse female population. And while I awaited those acceptances of my real work from The New Yorker, which never arrived, I earned enough from my romance freelancing to buy my first typewriter, a Royal Deluxe Portable manual. A year later, I moved on to a brief stint as articles editor on two confession magazines. Those supposed tell-alls, even sophisticates, believed in their veracity, including non-writer readers who submitted their actual true confessions in such condition that you had to believe they were actually true. (laughs) (laughs) They paid three to five cents a word. So, of course, I can do that, echoed in my head. But I couldn't cut it and switched my zeal to trying for the slicks. By a fluke, I next found myself as an editor, manuscript to bound book, Joy of Joys, at a venerable reference and how-to publisher, who shortly thereafter expanded into trade fiction and nonfiction. As I worked on their first list of teenage novels, the I can do that syndrome struck again. I resisted because at 25, I wasn't yet ready for a novel in middle age, maybe, but it wouldn't let up. However, though my workplace was now too far from Grand Central, I wrote it anyway. Actually, on a dinette table of our studio apartment evenings and weekends during the first year of my marriage. While my husband used the bed living room to study for the bar exam, my novel got published first time out with a trail of thrilling successes. Years later, with the house in the suburbs, the kids, the dog, I secretly longed for my desk at Grand Central that was actually only a half hour, but light years away. By then, however, I had discovered a new system. I wrote my third novel under the hairdryer at the beauty parlor every Saturday. Same kind of spiral notebook, pen, but now I had an electric typewriter to transcribe to. Yes, the book got published, and I had a year of being nicely quaffed, but that's a whole other story. What just was published? Yeah, okay. <laughs> cyberdog. <laughs>
0: cyberdog. It's dog who to play at computer. Cyberdog. Cyberdog. Yeah. Thank you, Corinne. That was really intriguing to me. I find out more and more about you and everybody else. You know, when everybody's reading, you find out even what goes on in the corners of minds, that's probably secret a little bit. Uh, it's a nice way of finding out. Um, about lovely human beings, because writing is always to me um, gives you ideas about life and for your own writing and everything. Um, and it's nice to hear different points of view about things. Um, and and Corrine, incidentally, is where we're going to have our next meeting uh, her house, her apartment. Um, okay, um, now we have the treat of having Lael Silbert. Who is both a, a prose and poetry writer uh, and a photographer, so she's a triple threat. Um, and I think she's going to tell you about it, but in case she doesn't, let me just mention that she has a story going to happen soon on the radio from the symphony space where they do the program about, um, you know, do short stories that famous people read and so on. And uh, Lael had one earlier this year, I know. Um, and uh, maybe it's happening now on the radio. But anyway, whatever it is you're going to tell us, please do. The story that
7: uh, I also referred to is a story I read here first so I ha- that's uh, it was read at Symphony space a year ago June and then the, the uh, they uh, run selected shorts on the public radio stations throughout the country and the uh, the the uh, evening that my uh, story was read will be uh, one of those. Uh, it will be on the 10th tenth, tenth of October uh, on WNYC at, on AM at 1 o'clock and at, uh, at 6 o'clock on uh, FM. So if you remember, please listen. But don't sneeze. It's a very short short. <laughs> in fact, it covers only one page in the book in which it was published. Okay, I'm not going to read fiction this time because I didn't think any of my stories would be short enough to fit into five minutes. So I'll read some poems instead. Now the first poem I'm going to read is called Braids, which I don't have anymore. Uh, Braids, Friday morning I braid my hair in front of the mirror, cannot see behind my head. Think of braids I might have made on a Friday morning kneading dough, separating it into strands, and braiding them into a crown, round as a rose, as only our village did for Sabbath bread. The whole world would know. Here is a challah from Taste tasted. This poem is called <coughs> excuse me. Suffrage. Kunya, who was an immigrant from Russia, started it. The year we got the vote in that preserve of the genteel Evanston, Illinois. She cut her hair, which ever after, bloomed short and wild. My mother cut her hair, then your mother, other mothers, not yet mothers, never mothers. We vote, but do the candidates care about our heads? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) I answered my own question. The the man with the monocle. They care only, well, you know what they care about. The man with the monocle. On a shimmering day in July, I went to see the shop on Main Street. In a movie house on 14th, how else would I ever know about the Holocaust? What was a Polish actress doing in a Czech movie? What were the Germans doing in Czechoslovakia? It's only a movie. I didn't own a shop, wasn't old, my hair wasn't white and I didn't live in Prague. The movie ended, I had to leave the darkness. I ran out into blinding light. A Nazi soldier, Monaco Dangly, ran out after me. I said, no, no, I still want to be a ballet dancer and learn Russian. You'll never learn, not you, he said. He melted into the light. I stopped running as the day began to t- darken. Oh, thank you. This next one has got a nice title. It's called Trotsky in Chicago. You never knew, did you? Uh, Before I was born, Trotsky came to Carmen's Union Hall on Ashland Boulevard. His real name was Brunstein. Trotsky sounded more revolutionary. When my father told me he was there, I forgot to ask what Trotsky said. It had to be about the revolution, exhilarating to the spirit, makes people want to live and see it happen. Years later, at night on Chicago Avenue, through the well lit windows of Thompson's that served pancakes with maple syrup, I saw a band of intelligentsia as in a cafe in a European capital waiting for the revolution. A thin man with slicked-down white hair, pince-nez glasses trembling, talked to a woman with dark Russian eyes and a black hat, nose veil pushed up, smoking with a holder that held her cigarette with little silver tongues. My father got over Trotsky, went into another line of politics. (laughs) Okay, here's another one about my father, but no Trotsky this time. Come on. Voices. When Begin speaks in the voice of first language, I remember my father and his voice, the same, never changing, no matter what he said. To Begin on the TV screen, I say, that's my father's way of speaking. Stop it. I don't want to hear either of you anymore. (laughs) Fine, says my father, 10 years dead. Listen to someone else in Yiddish, Russian, Polish, Hebrew, maybe a little English and see if you can keep your heart from cracking. No, Is that five minutes yet. Oh, Okay, I'll keep, oh boy. <laughs> Mr. Levitt. The last day of summer straggles in. I go for a walk, find Mr. Levitt next to, next to a flowery bush in his wheelchair, wearing his beret. In the full of his hundred years, he holds a levee for young, adoring admirers. A man takes his picture. Mr. Levitt looks stern, respectful as before his maker. If I had my camera, I'd wait for his sad, worn smile and say, When I took my father's picture, I'd tell him, You're not in the czarist army now. I leave, go to say hello to the Chinese woman on the corner who sells Bolivian woolens, I finished my walk. Mr. Levitt is back in his apartment crammed with his paintings. Okay. That's it? I forgot to watch my song. I say I forgot to watch
4: if
0: I take another you turn. Uh, I know. Thank you so much, Leo. Those were just delightful poems, um, and always you have different kinds of subject matter than. One is necessarily used to hearing, so it's terrific. I think I'm gonna read next. Um, But before I do, I wanna thank two people who are here tonight. One of them is um, Carolina Garcia, who uh, is our liaison with Penn And and she is the uh, coordinator of the Readers and Writers Committee, and she's also a poet and food writer. And she was the woman who catered yesterday's pen brunch where the food was so unusual and delicious. And um, so uh, anybody here interested about somebody catering for whatever in a different way, in a wonderful way, you might speak to to Carolina. but also, I just want to thank her so much for helping us do this tonight, because all the, the food and drink and the arrangements and the chairs and all that, you know, have to do totally with Carolina, except for the other person I want to thank, who is Sarah Sarai, um, who is a, a friend of Penn and volunteered when she spoke to me on the phone about helping out tonight, which I'm very grateful for because it's very hard to do all kinds of things yourself, you know. So that's what's happening. Um, and I thank you both very much. Uh, and and it, and this is the first time that we ever encountered each other in any ways. When she called me and spoke on the phone about coming to this event, you know, and then volunteered to do this. Isn't that terrific? <laughs> uh, so. I'm going to read poetry and I do other writing also as some people here know. Um, But tonight for the five minutes I'm going to read poetry and I've deliberately picked out poems that I can say something about. Um, One, um, the first poem that I'm going to read has just been published in this literary magazine which has poetry, short stories, music, art, all of that. Uh, it's called And Then, that's the name of the magazine. Robert Ross is the editor. And I'm mentioning this especially, I'm deliberately reading this, one, because I'm happy that it's published, uh, but two, because there will be a book party for this magazine that's coming out now um, on October 10th at Westbeth Community Center. I believe that Helen Duberstein was over here who's going to read it in a while. Uh, was instrumental in helping him get the space Uh, and Helen has had work in this publication and many other publications, but thank Helen and, pardon me? Did you give him the title of this magazine? Are you saying? And then it's called, right? Okay, great. So that's Helen's idea, you understand. Um, And so, if anybody wants to come to that party it's free and open to the public but if you do come it would be nice i understand if you would bring a little wine or or drink or or food or something um and it's in westbeth from four to eight okay and and uh a sunday a sunday westbeth in the community room westbeth is over on bank and bethune street near the hudson river so this poem um, is called, you know, actually, um, I didn't send it in. I, I have trouble sending in work. I, I have more time to write than I do to just send in work, or no time to write, and that's why I don't send in work. But um, this poem I read in a reading, and he happened to be there, and that's how it happened to, he heard it and asked me for it. So, um, so this is one of my funny ones, I hope. Women get bald too. <laughs> women get bald too, but the pate is not a clean slate, unlike some men whose head resembles a shiny billiard ball or a bowling ball with fringe. If that happened to women, they would cringe or become unhinged, wanting to keep their secrets they carry in the mine hidden under locks of hair styled with flare. Whereas men don't care if their brains are closer to the surface. (laughs) As long as their feelings are not. Or is this a bald-faced lie? Probably the poet got cranky and had a good cry in her hanky when she didn't have a good hair day. (laughs) That's that poem. Um, This one's a serious
8: one. I wrote
0: this summer in June. I was in a house in Sag Harbor and visiting relatives uh, who were renting it there and one of my relatives was very sick. So I was, um, you know, sad about all that and happy to be in Sag Harbor and away from New York and uh, so it's a mixture always of feelings about life, right? But in the room where I was uh, staying, um, the way it was furnished, uh, it was very livable. and and it had character to it, and I saw something that made me think about doing this poem. It's called Ragdoll. When I was young, I played with a ragdoll, made by grandma and given to me at nine, a birthday gift from a poor woman who loved me. Later, I became that ragdoll, tossed this way and that by love's tumultuous pulls, clothes and heart made ragged by so much use, so much touching, the cloth that contained me too thin to take so much wear and tear, the heart underneath rattling in its cage, also too thin to withstand the knocking at its gate so many times. And then the going away of love inevitably as if I were a rag doll meant to be abandoned by the vagaries of life and the child who grew up then looked for something more permanent to hold on to now I am almost as old as Grandma, when she gave me that gift, the rag doll love child. And I think of her, whose love was so pure, the way she cared for me had no strings. And I longed to be young again, ready to be pulled by love's tumultuous pulls. But this time, I would be in charge of the strings. Loving love, but this time, myself, too. So I could still hold the rag doll close to my heart. And it would never come to tatters, the doll or the heart." <laughs> now, thank you. Um, the last two poems I'm going to read, uh, one is from a larger work called Leaving, which was a concert piece for theater, various <laughs> poems set to music by co- uh, composer Frederick Koch. And this one is called The Bee. And the reason I'm reading this and the other one in part, is because I happen to care for these poems, but also because um, October 20th there'll be a, a concert called the Poet of Bleeker Street. I am from Bleeker Street. Um, Poet of Bleeker Street uptown, and a few of you might know. I, you know, there were a couple of other concerts downtown called the Poet of Bleeker Street. Um, And in this concert, there are works of about eight composers. Mostly, they've set my poems to music in different ways, art songs and concert you know, chamber works and so on. And also, there will be a little bit of an opera that I've been bringing to the workshop set in the Holocaust period um, called One Night Together. And and Daniel Burwasser is writing the music for that. So if anybody's interested, there's some flyers here, I'd be happy to give you. So this poem uh, has been set by Frederick Koch as a part of this uh, program, and it'll be on the program, but for now it's just a poem. The Bee. The bee drowned in orange juice this morning, a surfeit of sweets. If you dive right in and are too aggressive, that which you assume to be the nectar of the gods, some god may kill you. The same as that bee who rose from the grass or flew in from from some faraway rose bush zooming into my glass imagining a sip of heaven the bee fell in and drowning died i was not stung with remorse one less bee to bite me (laughs) and the last poem i'm reading today um, is from a a, an art song cycle called the maid and the maid m-a-i-d-m-a-d-e and um, Jeffrey Leffendorf has written the music to that art song cycle. And that will also be on the program at that concert. But one of the poems from it is called Jenny from, from Marseille. And I was, um, thought about writing this poem when um, I thought about Violin and Brecht and, and uh, Pirate Jenny and whatever, all those pieces and so on. Um, Jenny from Marseille, this one's called. Some call me a bimbo with arms akimbo. I beckon those in limbo with my eyes, men who skirt the edges and want to leap into my eyes, peep under my skirt, tasting country pleasures beside country hedges. Or in a dirty warren in this foreign city full of sailors and thieves, I allow some personal treasures to be taken as I go to their head in an unmade bed. But though they get into my skin, they don't get under it. For should they go over the edge, I don't care if they stand on a window ledge, contemplating a final fall. Let them leap and end it all. Their fears are not my province, and I don't wash their tears away. For they are only men, and just a moment in my unmade bed makes a man of them and makes me made and in their eyes just another bimbo laid. Let their tears fall where they may, but they will not forget to pay. For I don't do windows, I do men. I take in lovers, not washing. (laughs) Thank you very much. Okay, um, our very next person who's gonna be reading. Is Anita Velez Mitchell. She's going to be reading poetry. And Anita just has joined our group, uh, you know, d- different works that she had written and set to music and various people performing them and so on. And it was pretty wonderful. So here we have Anita Velez Mitchell.
9: first poem is called Hard Covers. Manhattan is mottled with books. Like beggars in distress, they rest on busy sidewalks, beckoning book lovers to stop. At random, I open a hard cover. Handsome in its day. Arise and drink your bliss, for everything is holy. On the musty spine is the author's name, William Blake. Suddenly, I recover faith, and humbly pick up another weighty volume. It thunders, the recognition of the sacredness of every man's life is first and only. T-S-Y blurred on the cover has to be Tolstoy. (laughs) As if having solved a crossword puzzle, I rejoice caressing the moldy leather, the still elegant ragged gilt edge. Phrases underlined like author's eyes after a night of vigil, waiting for the muse to sing or sigh. Link me to the anonymous lover of Belle lettres who once held his creative heirlooms in loving hands. I too underline the touching passages and highlight the quotable stuff. I too scribble in margins, quarrelling. With the author's vanity, comparing the earthly with the gods. I put up a hard bargain for Colette, Victor Hugo, Sylvia Plath, Cervantes, Dostoevsky, St. John Peirce. I walk home embracing these affordable life works that once tutel my esprit and I will read them in intimate prayer forging futures from the past I prop these six immortals rescued from the gutter like steps leading to an altar how can anyone discard such faithful friends friends come in handy when one is lonely especially these expert in street smarts, like urchins who refuse to die. (laughs) My second poem is Millennium, and I live on 57th Street across Carnegie Hall, so you'll see me there standing (coughs) on a corner. Standing on a corner of Manhattan, holding my breath, dangling like a falling star in the black hole of humanity, thinking time is eternal. Forty years, forever, I have crossed these streets over and over, here, there, 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 back and forth, back and forth, a blink, a walk, a don't walk, a sing for your supper, a yes, a no, a cue, a shove, a stumble, a beggar, a run, a shade in the sun, north, south, east, west, a west side story, a love, a love, a loveaholic, horse manure, piss, pesticles, a garbage stand, a drunken feast, a hit, a miss, a hurry, hurry, a well, I don't know, I'm sorry, Life's on the other side. Wait. Life's a pigeon with a broken wing. Life, a dime in the gutter. Yesterday, oblivion. Tomorrow, dream. A moment to moment. A somewhere love. A thought bird flying. Where? Back there. And there. And there. And where? Life, an avenue of desire. Life, a longing to go on and on, and on, longing. A day, a night, a dawn, a crossover. Life, a morning of love, of hope, of wonder. Thank you.
0: I'm always struck by the absolutely poetic quality of Anita's poetry. I mean, I know poetry is poetic, but (laughs) it's extremely poetic uh, in the best kind of way. So, thank you, Anita. Um, Our next wonderful writer is Maria Aralaga, and I want to say I'm so glad that she's here because some of the time she's been able to come up, she teaches professor in the University of Puerto Rico. And she's been in our group a long time, but sometimes she's had leaves of absence and so on, so she's been able to come to a lot of the meetings and so on. And a great deal of the time, she's in Puerto Rico, um, teaching there and writing, and she has books out. Um, new book this year, she'll probably tell you about it. Um, and uh, it's wonderful to hear her work, which is sometimes poetry and sometimes prose and sometimes other kinds of work. So here we are.
8: Thank you so much for coming, everyone. This is wonderful. to see so many friends for the first time, I'm, 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 you know, there to invite friends and they're here and it's great. So thank you. This is my new book. It just came out. <laughs> it's um, an anthology of my poetry. The first book is in English. The rest is in Spanish. So I'm going to read something from New York in the sixties, a very short, simple poem. Grace and stationary, gracie beats upon the shimmering rock of frozen salt of season, a myriad of empty life, the shells with their own beauty, the Onesian feast where we drink bitterness away. Dream of the texture of creatures of the open sea, the liquid flavor aesthetic. That brings drowsiness to see a gilded bike full of gold leaf flowers. This poem is from work in progress it's from a book i 'm working on. Um, The first book in English I wrote was New York in the 60s, so this might be New York in the 90s, but actually I think I'll call it Flamingos in Manhattan. And it's called Want To. I just turned 59. Not quite as openly sexy as 69, but let me tell you, quite good. (laughs) I know what I want. A soulmate, an ally, an accomplice, to witness her colossal struggle with life assertive in her brightness. I want us to share wants, secrets, motives, and mistakes. I wish to see her naked. I shall be naked too. My body's scarred and vital as only a body can be. Big, the two of us, big. I want us to run towards each other in a super real dramatic operatic embrace entwined as only best lovers can be. Close and tight. Out as the healthiest of mares, we shall relive the time of utmost pleasure when she was in my womb. I want to talk to her about men. It would be fun to share romantic, unfulfilled trivia, such as my fetish with men's thighs, via Errol Flynn's sexy swashbuckling costumes, my howling, wrenching, forever present desire for Brando, my unspoken love, the climbing, ivy and scene of attraction, for our cousin, Raul Julia. It would be neat to stand side by side holding hands in front of the 42nd Street Library, sharing the occult magic of the lions, patience and fortitude, who along with Kong, forever swinging from the top of that most beloved of art deco empires, are always on call to rescue me at the slightest whisper of my need. Icons, saviors, very best friends we could share these friends, why not? I want her hungry as me, passionate to the point of blissful exhaustion, imaginative, a little kinky, never to the point of hurt, just killed, a warrior trained in the deep unfathomable space of accomplished pleasure. We are tantric worshipers and experts on the images of Kajura Ho, among other bites. I want from her, for her as well, intelligent companionship, intense as a calf bleeding, as raw as mother's milk, profound, such as Augustine's, marginal, edgy, generous, and open, safe, perhaps, for I don't give a damn where it comes from. Persuasion and persuasions shall be our bond, to do gardens together, eat up a storm of oysters, get drunk on Dom Perignon, like wood sparkling with fat snowflakes and rapture in their blossoms only to turn green, exquisite as a fra angelico, cool as camels laughing towards the wild ucker ballet whose splendid changing leaves shall populate our earthly moonscapes. And enjoy the song of, oh, so many spheres, as the music becomes almost too much to bear while we walk to meet the sun as well as to salute the rousing nightfall. Anytime, anywhere, we shall become wizards of the walk. Each of our bodies shall assert itself as the best possible kingdom. We shall with humor play with it, get to know it well and deal transcendentally with its many glorious as well as not so sublime ups and downs. We shall joyfully cherish its fragility and mortality as we would an exquisitely blithe sometimes wounded deer. I already know its immense sources of pleasure and pass on to you that the most powerful life source is quite genderless, so we might worship the chicken as well as the egg. Now that I am 59, I still feel a lot of youth in me. Sometimes I look at the midnight blue of the sky, see a lone star making love to a slice of moon, Mm, And dumbfounded by the sheer ecstasy of it all, I shriek and shriek and shriek like a she-wolf in heat, absolutely mad, savage with desire. Thank you. (laughs)
0: So thank you for being so incredibly honest about all those wonderful feelings that we all have (laughs) and and mostly we we keep it in the the drawer, you know, (laughs) writings we don't read and show people. (laughs) So I think they're great, they're wonderfully expressive and they put fantasies into reality, you know, and and I think you have great ideas, do them all. (laughs) Uh, our next uh, reader is someone I've been waiting now to hear her poetry. We haven't heard it in a while because the summer has been here and everything. And this is Lillian Morrison, who is a wonderful poet um, and has a long history of doing all kinds of fascinating things with writing. And she was just telling me. tonight that something else is coming up that she's involved with that is very interesting um, and she's going to tell us, I guess. Uh, And if not, maybe she'll tell us something else about what she's doing.
5: Uh, Houghton Mifflin has just accepted an anthology of poetry for the young called More Spice Than Sugar, Poems About Feisty Females <laughs> that I'm now working on. Uh, and learning, did you want to pick about for poems about
0: Frank?
5: Well, yeah, I need a, I need poems about Anne Frank, if anybody has done one that could be enjoyed by someone ten or eleven. 12 or up. Uh, This first one is called Ode to a Shirt. It was published in a magazine called Calliope. A sleeve hangs over a chair. My clothes are strewn about the room. Mockeries of sprawled limbs, of limp bodies in disarray, casualties of the week's forays, I am not without feeling for you. I will put you to bed in your drawers and closets. I will finger you, brush you, keep you clean, tenderly, my intimate extensions, who keep me warm, who mask and message me to the world outside. But there comes a time when some of you must leave. Red checkered flannel shirt, dearest of all, who made me feel like the great outdoors. You've grown too small. Oh, once I was a hiker on high mountains, a lady lumberjack all lean and lithe. Old shirt, you keep reminding me of what I can no longer be. You're off to the army of salvation and I'll miss you more than you miss me. This one comes from a book of mine called Overheard in a Bubble Chamber. It's called The Voice in the Storm. I'm a lurkabout about cloud in a lurching sky tonight. Would rather be a sunshield sailing by in reasonable light, but turbulent times prevent. I run with the riot up here. Like all the others, I'll burst, rain down on you. You'll never know, this was reluctant rage. This one's called, I Like You. I like you because you're thin, like chamber music. No, like nerve music, played on two strings. Music for exquisite insects. Torture music, pain music. Of course, that isn't really why I like you. It's just that it is you, partially. Whatever is you, the fullness of your feeling for Mahler, of your mouth, I like that too. <coughs> this is a, a sports poem published in the Academic Journal of Sports Literature, called Athlon. It's called Ginny. On the baseball team at college, I was good field, no hit. So they made me manager and I arranged schedules. Our power was Ginny Vaughan, a tall, rangy freshman who grew up on a farm in South Jersey playing ball with her many brothers. What joy to watch her stride to the plate and smack those extra base hits again and again. I rode my bike around campus, read books, wrote papers, crammed for exams, and got my degree. But when I look back, it is Ginny I remember, ambling up to the plate with a slight smile on her placid, rosy-cheeked face, and smashing a towering homer into the brush beyond the ball field as our forlorn opponents Where is she now, I wonder? What is she doing? Is she a bomber pilot? A mother of nine? A CEO for some large corporation? This heroine of springtime whose vivid memory refreshes as I sit at my desk, write, and listen to games on the radio. And finally, this one's called Mother. In those days, what she laughed at, feared, yearned for, was like a breeze around me. My weather, enjoyed or tolerated. Now, it is absorbed into the tissues. Death's distance tells how close we are. Yes, I pay her much attention now, who sleeps warm enough at last or so I hope, in the bed of my bones.